0: If you haven't done so already, I would ask you to turn to the book of Ruth and chapter 4. Uh, not for, if you're not familiar with the book uh, and its location in our canon, uh, it's right after the book of Judges, before 1 Samuel. You have the first five books of the Bible, then Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Let's read the Word of God, chapter 4 of Ruth, verse 13 through 22. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, and she became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron... Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amenadab, Amenadab fathered Nashan, Nashan fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This morning we are examining the story. The genealogy of a boy who was born to a dead man via the man's daughter-in-law, who happened to marry, as we will see, the son of a prostitute. And our passage concludes the book of Ruth. So before we examine this text here, find it profitable that we have an understanding of the book as a whole. Um. So rather than uh, spending most of our time on this passage with a brief discussion of the context, I want to uh, work our way all the way through the book of Ruth, seeing how from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 4, verse 12, we are building and leading to this glorious genealogy and see the culmination of this wonderful book the Bible um, in these nine verses. So if we're going to understand Ruth, we have to understand as well the book of Judges. The book of Judges ends in this way. In those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If you know how the Bible describes the way of man, or that which seems right to him, warning signals should go off in your mind when you hear that everyone in the land did what was right in his own eyes in this time. These are dark days. The context of Judges, and consequently our book here, which occurs in that time period, uh. It goes something like this. Sin abounds. God then judges the people of Israel. Famine. um, uh, Oppression from surrounding uh, nations. uh, And then, in the midst of oppression, God, through uh, a judge that he raises up, he restores the nation of Israel to peace and a right relationship fellowship with him and there's brief repentance it seems and devotion to the lord and then the people fall into sin yet again this is the constant cycle of this time period as well as israelite history generally speaking these are indeed bleak days and ruth if you'll turn back to chapter one starts out on an appropriately bleak note the note of despair sounds in the first five verses. We read, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So this is how our story begins. And as I said, everything that happens from this point forward is leading to a great and glorious genealogy in the book's last nine verses. It is not an anticlimactic ending to the book, as some may suppose. So these first five verses describe our crisis And the last nine describe our resolution. So let's begin walking through this lovely book. First, in line with the ominous beginning, uh, the ominous time during the days of the judges, we see that there's a famine in the land of Israel. This makes sense because, as I mentioned, famine was God's way, often, of chastising Israel for their rebellion and idolatry. Yet, this small family moves. See in verse 1. Now, moving, perhaps in your mind, uh, doesn't seem like a bad thing, and it's not explicitly stated to be... A lack of, a demonstration of a lack of faith on Elimelech's part, but here's why I think it is. We see that through famine, chastisement of God's people, God is not just being mean for the sake of being mean, but is calling his people back to himself. He's calling them to turn from their rebellion, their own ways, and to pursue him. And yet, Elimelech moves to the pagan nation of Moab. What's so bad about Moab? Well, if you remember, the king of Moab wanted to curse Israel in the book of Numbers. Balak calls up Balaam to curse Israel. And instead, Balak gets himself and Moab cursed. Balaam foretells the destruction of Moab. And prophesies the coming of the king of Israel who will crush the forehead of his enemy Moab. Find this in Numbers 24. So Elimelech is leaving the promised land to dwell in the land that is destined for destruction. Next up in this tale of disaster, the man of the family dies while they are in Moab. Then his surviving sons married two Moabite women. Now, this should also give us cause for concern. Deuteronomy 23 tells us that the Moabites were not allowed into the assembly of the Lord. Now, not only have this has his family now moved to Moab, but the two boys are now married to Moabite women. We learn their names, Ruth and Orpah. Yet, Naomi's nightmare continues... In verse 5, it's recorded that now her sons die and leave her with nothing. She didn't have much to begin with. She moved because of a famine, but at least she had her family. Now she has nothing. Imagine her grief. Many of you have lost parents, spouses, some even children. Imagine the physical, emotional and spiritual fatigue that sets in upon Naomi. She's followed her husband to from the land of promise to a cursed land. She survives him and her two and her sons, Mary, Moabite women, and they die leaving her with nothing in this world. She's in a foreign land in rebellion against God and now the Lord takes everything away from her. She even says so herself in verses 13 and 20 of chapter 1. She has no children, no means of getting any children, providing for herself, just being sustained. She's nothing left except two daughters-in-law who are probably going to leave her, desert her, and then she will truly be alone. I want to, I want to take a moment and... Consider some brief application for us in this matter of suffering. Now, as I've said, I don't doubt that Naomi and Elimelech uh, sinned, at least in some regard, by leaving Jerusalem. But is the right response from her friends, assuming she had any? Well, what goes around comes around. You get what you deserve. You turn your back on the Lord, and He's turned His back on you. Of course not. Now, there may be a time and a place for discussing her sin and the matter. But here and now, she needs someone to not tell her how horrible she is, but to weep with her, to be with her. So in the midst of suffering, whether it's great suffering or small suffering, let's not immediately begin pointing fingers. Hey, hey, what did you do to bring about... This tragedy in your life. Because as we consider the relationship between suffering, sin, is this suffering of Naomi's just about her sin? Probably not, because there's still three chapters, almost four, left in the book. So, a long way to go. So, God is up to something in this bitterness. So although suffering may indeed be a result of sin, it doesn't have to be, or at least it doesn't have to only be that. So back to our story, we see Naomi and that through her suffering, perhaps, she is prepared to do what she should have done in the first place, turn to the Lord. She's returning to Judah, for she heard that the famine was over in verse 6. She sets out with her two daughters-in-law, but then she tells them that to come with her doesn't guarantee wealth. The famine may be over, but she seems to think that sticking with her likely implies the opposite of health, wealth, and prosperity. So out of her renewed heart, she urges Orpah and Ruth to return, lest they not fully consider the cost of being part of God's covenant people. All that's promised is that they'll have the Lord, ultimately. They may have nothing else, but they'll have Him. And we see this uh, transpiring in verses 8 through 14. And Orpah, in verse 14, takes her chances and returns back to Moab. But in verses 15 through 18... Ruth refuses to let Naomi go back to Jerusalem on her own. Ruth persuades Naomi to allow her to return. Now, Ruth, I don't believe, is just committed to her mother-in-law, as some have thought, but she is committed To Naomi as well as to the Lord. Listen to what she says in verses 16, 17. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This is covenant language. Ruth has become a true Israelite, it seems. And as it happens, they return to Bethlehem. And although they both have returned to the land and seemingly seemingly have spiritually turned to the Lord, Naomi still doesn't have all the answers for her suffering. Perhaps any at this point. Uh, She does, however... Though not knowing all the ins and outs, she recognizes that it is the Lord's doing. She says that the Lord is dealing harshly with her, has given her a bitter path in life. When she returns, she tells the ladies not to call her Naomi, which means my sweetie, but to call her Mara, which means bitter. She says she's gone out full and returned empty in verse 20. Now, She's not talking about going out full of material possessions. They left because of a famine. They were poor and needed food. She went out likely full of herself and her family, intent on self support, doing it their way, and has been brought back with nothing left to depend on for her life but the Lord. In light of this, I don't don't see Naomi as complaining, blaming, and resenting the Lord, but honestly enduring her suffering, leaving her life in the Lord's hands. Now, in verse 22 of chapter 1, our author takes a minute to set the scene again. They, as we know, have arrived at Bethlehem, yet it's at the time of the barley harvest. And this is not a throwaway time phrase. The book began with a famine and a turning away from the Lord. And we arrive at harvest and a turning to the Lord. See the contrast? You get the picture? We start with physical, spiritual emptiness and now we're coming to a time of physical and spiritual plenty. But keep in mind, however, that although... There are uh, many resources in Bethlehem. Naomi and Ruth are not going to have much access to them. They are widows. And one of them is, it seems, at least beyond childbearing age. Maybe not well beyond, but she can't have children, it seems. Yet the Lord is beginning to reap what He has been sowing in the hearts of Naomi and Ruth. Naomi went out full of herself and the Lord has brought her back empty. Through his surgeon's scalpel of suffering, he has removed her self-sufficiency and has made her dependent upon him. Chapter 2 introduces introduces us to a man named Boaz, a worthy man, who just so happens to be of the clan of Elimelech, Ruth's father-in-law. See this in verse 1. The story then cuts right back to Ruth and Naomi. So why mention Boaz? It's because the author wants us to pay attention to this man. As we move through the rest of the book, keep your eyes focused on Boaz. Look at him, examine him, notice him. So let's do that as we go through. Pay attention to Boaz. And I want to make a quick note about the phrase, a worthy man. There's some debate as to its intended meaning. Some have thought it referred primarily to, uh, to wealth. He was a wealthy man. And though that's probably implied, I think it's best to understand it in this way, that Boaz is a man worth his salt. He is a man of means, but more basic than that, he's a man of substance. He's a man of character. He's a man who counts. With her eyes on Boaz, let's press on. Ruth is a go-getter. She's not just going to sit around, wait for something to happen, but she's going to work. She sets out to glean in the fields of the harvest, in verse 2. Now if you recall, or even if you don't recall, there was a law given by God that sojourners were to be allowed to glean from the fields of those of Israel. Israelites were to leave the border of their field untouched for the foreigner and the destitute to glean and live off that portion. Uh, Leviticus nineteen nine through 10 reads, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall... Uh, you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Ruth then takes advantage of this gracious provision of the Lord, and she's out as she's out gleaning. She happens to come upon Boaz's land. Literally, the author's saying that she comes upon uh, the portion of his field by chance. Now, as we as good Reformed Baptists know that things don't just happen, many of you have probably been annoyed by my insisting that luck and fate don't exist, but all fall underneath the umbrella of God's sovereignty. So what then gives with our author's description of this event? Ruth just happens to come upon the field by chance. I think his point is exactly mine, that besides the fact that Ruth wasn't intending it, it can't possibly be just a coincidence that Ruth happens upon Boaz's field, who, as we've already seen, just so happens to be a relative of her father-in-law. Rather, in all of this, unknown to our characters, God is sovereignly orchestrating the events of the lives of our characters to bring about His purposes for them. And as we see in chapter 4, when we get there, for the world. This is made even more evident in the next verse. He says as well, verse 4, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Further upholding this idea that Ruth just happens to come upon his field. And he just happens at that moment to come to it as well. Hardly. Like we've said, God is up to something in this story. Boaz then engages in two conversations in this next scene. The first is with the foreman of the reapers in verses 5 through 7. And the second is with Ruth herself. Verses 8 through 16. The short version of this is that Boaz is taken with Ruth's character, and and uh, wants her to uh, glean. He gives her permission to glean from his land and insists that she stays uh, on his land. And he provides her with bread, wine, protection, a means of sustaining herself, uh, and her mother-in-law this time. She gives her a job. Uh, yet, uh, and we don't have time, unfortunately, to examine it. But there's there's a hint, even here, of Something deeper. A romance blossoming. So while I I would love to explore this, the beauty of their romantic relationship, romance is not our focus this morning, so let's press on to the end of chapter 2. Ruth left an empty house that morning and returns with 30 pounds of barley, roughly. And Naomi notices She says in verse 17, where have you been? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So Ruth tells her mother about her day, and about the man Boaz who took notice of her. And Naomi loves what she hears. She praises God for his kindness to them and tells Ruth to stick close to Boaz's young women while working in the field for safety and then this goes on for some time and without going into the details like i said of this it's clear that god's stamp his mark of covenant love has been placed on ruth and boaz and it appears clear that they have been brought together by the lord so that the man boaz might not be alone the woman ruth and her mother-in-law might be delivered out of their poverty And undergirding it all still is God's working to bring about the birth of a child. A child who does not deliver widows merely from poverty, but a child who will deliver his people from their sins. We will get to that shortly. So here in our story, uh, Boaz and Ruth, here they stand, excuse me, suited for one another. Will they or won't they? What happens? Well, as we come to chapter 3, I must admit that uh, the most difficult part of the book for me, in fact, is probably one of the more challenging chapters in all of the Bible. And there have been countless discussions on it and would need, indeed, an entire sermon, uh, volumes of books, actually, to address all the issues here and so for our time this morning, I can give you my understanding, why I understand it this way, um, and that's all. So chapter 3 begins, and Ruth remembers her desire for Naomi from chapter 1 that she find rest, and find a husband. And it seems perhaps that Ruth, uh, Naomi takes takes things into her own hands a little bit. She says, isn't it good that I find rest for you? And she runs ahead, perhaps, of what it's revealed that God is intending. Naomi reminds Ruth that Boaz is a close relative. And then she tells her 20-something-year-old daughter-in-law to bathe, dress up, perfume herself, and go to the threshing floor at night where Boaz was working all day and he had ate a full meal, um, drank some wine, and had gone to bed. She says to uncover his feet and lay down beside him at his feet and see what happens. Does this make you as uncomfortable as it Made me? I think that's a good thing. I think that the author has us right where he wants us. Asking the question, Will all that God has been doing, wonderfully working together for the good of the world, end disaster here? What is this? We must read on. Remember to keep your eyes on Boaz. He's a relative of Elimelech. It's mentioned in chapter 2, verse 20, and uh, it's brought up again here, beginning of chapter 3, verse 2. And in chapter 2, he's said to be one of their redeemers. I haven't mentioned this yet, but uh, now I want to discuss this term. We know that Christ is our Redeemer. We as Christians talk about it that way. So why is Naomi calling Boaz her Redeemer? Lexically, the word speaks of buying back someone or something that has fallen into debt. In the Mosaic Law, God made provisions for his family, that is the people of Israel, that in a variety of circumstances, a close family member of an individual uh, that if a, close family, if a close family member of an individual should fall into poverty, uh, you could, one could go to their aid and provide them relief and buy them out of their trouble. Sinclair Ferguson writes, if a, if a family member found himself in such debt that he sold himself into slavery, his kinsman redeemer would pay to redeem him. If family property was mortgaged in one way or another, the kinsman redeemer would regain it for the family. Underlying this was the fact that the family members were God's servants, not man's. And family land was God's land, given in trust. Additionally, Deuteronomy 25, 5-8 through 8, describes a man's responsibility to his brother's wife in the event that his brother dies without Family lines were much more important to the people of Israel than they are to uh, 21st century Western uh, Americans. And so the principle that underlies this practice was continuing the family line. The brother was, in essence, giving his deceased brother a child. Again, Ferguson comments. By this means, the deceased man's name would not be forgotten and lost in Israel. And the promise of God that he would bless a a faithful man to generations yet unborn would have visible physical testimony among his people. And it seems that Naomi is picking up on this. And even though Boaz is not a brother-in-law, he is a close redeemer, a close kinsman. And could fill this role redeeming them out of childlessness, poverty, landlessness. So it seems that she perhaps rashly devises a plan to bring about her own purposes that, to her credit, she sees God involved in the matter, but perhaps she runs ahead and, it seems, actually exposes Ruth and Boaz to great danger. It is worth noting, however, that she leaves the outcome in the hands of Boaz. Verse 4, she says, he will tell you what to do. So she's encouraging her daughter to be very forthright and upfront about her desires. It does leave it in the hands of Boaz, but it still leaves them in a compromising situation. However... The integrity of Boaz and Ruth shines forth in the midnight hour of this story. What began in the day now comes to a head in the middle of the night. Boaz has been working hard all day, has eaten a full meal, has drank some wine without being drunk, but he then lies down to sleep, and as he sleeps, behold, a woman. Ruth has done what her mother said, and she's laid down near Boaz. Now, as I've said, there's much debate, and um, all the various understandings of the words that are used and uh, what kind of encounter this is it is' at least plausibly um, uh, it's very charged with a lot of romance and um some uncertainty as to exactly what's going on, but it's vital to remember the integrity of both Ruth and Boaz is not questioned in this book. (coughs) So even though it perhaps is a compromising situation, engineered by Naomi, (coughs) Boaz reacts with great poise and integrity, assuring Ruth of his intentions for her, yet waiting on the Lord to bring them together at the right time, since there is a Redeemer that is actually closer than Boaz says in verse 12. So they must wait for this Redeemer to either fulfill or to abdicate His role as her Redeemer. So the point to take away from chapter 3 here is that both Ruth and Boaz are worthy individuals that God is bringing together in His own time. So even though this is not the way that would advise young couples to go about entering into relationships making their intentions known in this moment in history through the anxiety of Naomi perhaps some naivete of Ruth and the integrity of Boaz god is bringing about his purposes so the next morning after the night in danger of past Boaz sends Ruth back with an overwhelming Six measures of barley. Here, Boaz is is assuring Ruth, and perhaps more importantly, assuring Naomi of his intentions. And it's good to note even a subtle change in Naomi from plotting, scheming a little, the beginning of chapter 3, to trusting at the end. Verse 18, she says, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest But we'll settle the matter today. So chapter 4 brings us to our final obstacle to this wedding and redemption. As Boaz has said, there's a redeemer who is a closer kinsman to Ruth and Naomi than Boaz. So he must defer to him and allow him first rights to give his relative a child. Again, we see the integrity of Boaz. Here he is a man desiring to marry this young woman, and yet he holds fast to his integrity and desires rather to honor God than to marry this woman against the law. So he sets out to speak with this unnamed redeemer. If he will have her, our love story seemingly comes to a bitter end. But if God will bring about the marriage of Ruth and Boaz, then our story will be joyfully complete. Maybe not complete because there's even more. So let's see what happens. Boaz steps out for the city gate beginning of chapter 4, where the city fathers gathered as judges and counselors. Behold, the closer Redeemer appears. Boaz invites him to have a seat with him. And it's significant to note that this man goes unnamed. He plays no role in the advancement of God's kingdom, as we will see him fail to fulfill his covenant obligations. Our author does not see fit to give him a name. So this Redeemer sits down, probably very unaware of what's about to take place. And Boaz then asks the elders to sit down as well in verse 2. And he, in verses 3 and 4, lays out before them all the situation. And he tells the Redeemer of the matter. And then to our horror, and perhaps Boaz is the Redeemer agrees. Says, yeah, I'll do that. But Boaz hadn't finished, and he goes on and adds that he must provide Naomi with a child through her daughter in law, Ruth. And then in verse 6, the Redeemer backpedals and tells Boaz to go for it. He sees this child, he sees Ruth, and this child she will bear. As a threat to his own personal gain and inheritance, and has no desire to fulfill his covenant obligations before the Lord, so Boaz pledges to give Elimelech a son and in verses seven through twelve or the record of the, the transaction between the two and the the elders of the city affirming themselves as witnesses to this transaction. And then they pray a blessing over Boaz and Ruth And now we arrive at our text It brings us to this glorious end Of this fantastical story Of God's grace and providence In the lives of Naomi, Ruth and Boaz After all After all this, Boaz takes Ruth to be his wife in verse 13. At long last, the love story culminates in marriage. Boaz has redeemed Ruth and Naomi, and the Lord gives Ruth conception. We see still the sovereignty of the Lord at play. He's brought these two together, and he is the one who opens and closes the womb. He gives Ruth the ability to conceive and she bears a son. How easy it may be to overlook this clause, and the Lord gave her conception. As I said, it is the Lord who opens and closes the womb. So, married couples, perhaps particularly young ones, a word to you, a word to us. Wherever you find yourself desperately trying to have a child, Desperately trying not to have a child. Somewhere in the middle. Find yourself, ladies pregnant. Remember to trust in the Lord. He is the one that gives conception. In God's good timing, you will or won't have a child, whatever He wills. God is the author of life, and He graciously created life in the womb of Ruth. Ladies, married women, desiring a child, He just may do the same for you in His time. So the Lord, through Boaz, has given Elimelech a son, that the name of the dead man may not be cut off among his brothers, and from the gate of his native place, in chapter uh, 4, verse 10. Well, there's more, more than this. In fact, there's a lot more. This story is not about a widow being redeemed out of her poverty, and a dead man not <clears throat> being forgotten. If it was, the story could end here. Verse 13 of chapter 4 could be the end of Ruth, if that's all God wanted us to know was that He graciously provided for this family. Which He did. But it doesn't end here. It goes on. The women say to Naomi, in verse 14, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may His name be renowned in Israel. In the midst of all this, our characters consistently are seen The Lord's involvement in their lives. The Lord afflicted Naomi. She brought her back (coughs) with Ruth (coughs) and brought Ruth to Boaz. And the Lord has not, excuse me, (coughs) has not forgotten and left Naomi and Ruth without a redeemer. as the old hymn goes, whether in poverty's veil or abounding in wealth, let's always remember to see the Lord's gracious involvement in our lives and give thanks to Him for His gracious provision for us. And the women continue. He shall be to you a restorer of life. In a nourisher of old age. At first, it confused me who, to whom they were referring. Is it who's the He? Is it Yahweh? Is it Boaz? Is it the boy? Well, remember what's just happened. Old, lonely, helpless Naomi has just been given a son. Her husband and family name will now not be forgotten. She has a son to whom she can perhaps leave inheritance, a uh, son. To care for a son, to care for her. These considerations, coupled with what the women go on to say, or they say in verse fifteen, that he's a restorer of life. This restorer of life, nourisher of old age, has been born to Ruth. So it's the boy who is given life back to Naomi. She becomes his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. As we said, this story is about God. and It shows us God superintending the lives of individuals in the midst of great spiritual darkness in the land to bring about His purposes of redemption. And now for our great ending, these are the generations of Perez. We know from Genesis that Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah, Judah fathered Perez. Now our, our author picks up at this point in redemptive history and tells us that Perez fathers Hezron, Heather's fathered... Hezron fathered Aminadab, who fathered Nashan, who fathered Salmon. Now, a note about Salmon. He adds another bit of intrigue to this story I alluded to earlier. Well, first we notice that he is the father of Boaz. But Second, in the book of Matthew, in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, Boaz's mother is identified as Rahab. The prostitute. The one that helped the Israelite spies escape the fate that awaited them if the rulers of Jericho found them. This story is the one recorded in Joshua chapter 2. So Boaz's mother was originally a prostitute. Oh, is it not true that God draws straight with crooked lines it is through Rahab that Boaz is born through Boaz that Obed is born and then Jesse and David and then Solomon Rehoboam and on it goes to Jesus ferguson again helpfully summarizes the significance of this event in this very short book he writes if there's no immigration to moab there's no return with ruth there's no ruth there's no marriage to boaz no marriage to boaz there's no obed no obed there's no jesse no jesse there's no david And if it were not for David, there would be Jesus. We know from the Gospels, Jesus comes from the line of David. Ferguson again writes, This then is the final explanation for and the purpose behind the trauma of Naomi's experience in the costly pilgrimage of Ruth. What God was quarrying out of the suffering of these two women was nothing less than... And his purpose to bring his son into the world in Bethlehem. So, this story about a widow, her daughter in law, and their Redeemer is really about God and about how he was bringing about the birth of the Redeemer of the world. Remember what we said Redeemer means in closing it refers to buying someone out of debt. We are in debt, debt to God. God created a very good world, and Adam, his vassal king, was to rule in Eden and extend God's glorious presence to the ends of the earth. Adam, however, rebelled against God. Additionally, Adam was our representative. So as it goes with Adam, so it goes with us. In Adam, we have offended God infinitely in this rebellion. And we offend Him all the more by our own individual, actual sins. We have a debt we can never repay. We must be purchased out of our depravity and sin by one greater than ourselves. So Jesus is born to the Virgin Mary through the providence of God. And lives a sinless life under the law of God. Then on the cross in the place of guilty sinners, he suffers the wrath of God. So that through faith and repentance, we may have the righteousness of God. This is the gospel. This is ultimately with what the book of Ruth is concerned. The faithful God will bring about his purposes. Rest assured, tired one. Rest assured hurting one, rest assured broken one, rest assured all of you. Whether you find yourself in the depths or on the heights, rest assured God is faithful. Give yourself to the Lord and no matter what trials and troubles befall you, As we will sing in a minute, moment, you can say with our dear brother who suffered much in this life, William Cooper, behind a frowning providence, God is hiding a smiling face. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask now that you would take your word that was proclaimed and planted in our hearts. Lord, if there was any untrue word that came from my lips, that it would pass right through us. And that Your Word, Your truth, is that which would stick in our minds and our hearts. And we would be convicted of sin. And yet we would be assured of God's faithfulness. To His people. To those who are in Christ. God is a Father, Savior, Redeemer. And we can know Your love for us in this story. Ruth and Boaz. In the midst of suffering... Midst of foolishness, you brought about in your wisdom, your purposes, you brought about the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for that. I recognize my inadequacy, my inability to proclaim your word in the way that it ought to be done. But God, I pray that in weakness, your power would shine forth. You would save sinners. You would comfort the saints. And we would be conformed to the image of Christ. That we would love your book, your Bible that you've given us. This Old Testament is not just a book of stories to know and to tell for fun. But it prepares us for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we look back, not only to birth of a child to Boaz, but we look to the birth of a child to Mary to Joseph, and we look to His life and death and resurrection for sinners as our only hope of being right with God. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.